So we are covering a lot of the Gospel of Mark in our lectionary, and we will be again in the Gospel of Mark today. Uh, the passage that we'll be covering, actually, we actually covered a, a, a piece of this passage earlier in the year. Um, but I just wanted to start by just giving a quick refresh on the Gospel of Mark itself, uh, given that it's been such a significant topic for us uh, this year. So we think the Gospel of Mark was written probably in about 60 or 70 AD, which places it just after the destruction of Rome at the hands of Nero. Um, uh, so I say the destruction of Rome, but there was a great fire and Nero was probably, um, his mismanagement was uh, something that comes up there. Uh, he was a bit of a madman. Uh, nonetheless, it coincided with a great persecution because when uh, Rome burned, Nero needed someone to blame, so he said, oh yeah, this is definitely, it was the Christians' fault. You should all be cranky with the Christians. Uh, it also coincides with the time when Simon Peter was martyred. So yeah, it kind of falls into this window of time after the um, Rome burned and when Nero was persecuting the church and Peter has now been uh, uh, martyred, and we well, that's when we assume it was written. I mean, it could have been written 20 years earlier or 20 years later. We just, we cannot be sure. There's no really clearly defining uh, aspect of the gospel that tells us when it was, but that is our assumption. And our assumption is that it's actually the first of the gospels that was written. And for a long time, people thought that the gospel of Mark was just an abbreviated version of the gospel of Matthew. Uh, but in more recent scholarship, they've gone, nah, actually, we think Matthew probably copied from from Mark, it was the other way around. Uh, so we assume that this was a letter that was written in Rome to the persecuted church in Rome. So it wasn't, uh, you know, like a gospel that was being sent out to the far ends of the earth. It was, it was written for this group of people who were experiencing persecution. Uh, and so it is the shortest of the gospels. The assumption is that the author is John Mark, who was the companion of Paul and Luke, uh, but also he was the secretary, well, at least that's that's what they call him, uh, the, the secretary for Peter. Uh, some people think Peter was illiterate, but Peter wanted his story and his relationship with, uh, with Jesus to be known. So this is the, um, the, the recording of Peter's insights is our best guess at how it works. And 90% of the gospel of Mark can actually be reproduced in Matthew and Luke. Um, so like I said, you know, like some, we used to think it was an abbreviated version uh, but there are a, a few um, things that are unique nonetheless. Right, so our passage is going to start today in Mark chapter 8 and 27. And the first half of that verse simply says, Jesus and his disciples went to, on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, so Caesarea Philippi, I know some of you hate it when I talk about where everything is and do the the um, geography and occasionally even geology. Uh, but Caesarea Philippi was significant because it was a long way north. It was right at the base of Mount Hermon uh, and it was a site of significant military significance and it was also a site of abundant water, which was an important thing. Uh, so this uh, place, if you go directly up from, so he's come from Bethsaida, which is, uh, if you remember the maps in our previous kind of month of, of teaching, uh, to the north, what is it, east uh, or on the Lake of Galilee. If you keep going north, the feeder into the Lake of Galilee is Mount Hermon, the rivers and the, uh, and the water that comes from there. So that's where Caesarea Philippi is. And it's actually just outside of Israel. Uh, 
So it's the furthest that Jesus gets away from um, kind of Jerusalem. And it's also uh, into the, the Gentile kind of territory there. Uh, so there are a few reasons we think that's important. One is simply that it's outside of Herod's uh, Antipas's reach. He's outside of the scrutiny of Herod. And he's already starting to say and do and live in a way that is making people nervous, which we'll talk about more in a second. So this is kind of him taking a break. It can snow in this area. That's how far north we're talking. It's and high up. It, um, and in Caesarea Philippi, because it's a Gentile area, it also meant that it was a pagan area. So there was a lot of pagan worship that happened in Caesarea Philippi. It was named, um, uh, it was actually named Panias first, which was named after the, um, the Greek god Pan. You know, the little, I don't know, he's a, what's the, how do you describe what he is? He's got like the, the hoofs, a satyr. Uh, uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, so it was actually named after Pan. And um, because there was a grotto in the cliff face of the wall, there was this huge 80 meter wide uh, 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 or high wall in um, Caesarea Philippi, which is where they did all these pagan sacrifices and stuff. And in the corner of that, there was a grotto where the, the earth opened up and water sprung forth. And um, there's a whole bunch of uh, writers in, in ancient history that talk about this place. And Josephus is one of them. And he talks about this, the roiling water coming up out of the earth there. And they, they, they called that place the Gates of Hades, uh, which in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus, the conversation Jesus is about to have with his disciples um, about who he says he is, um, I think that the, the site itself is significant, uh, more so in the Gospel of Matthew than it is in Mark. But we'll, again, we'll cover that when we get to it. So the name Caesarea Philippi is an, in honor of Caesar, firstly, and it was how Herod the Great built a... Um, a temple there above this, right on top of this grotto, this water coming out, this spring, uh, Herod the Great. And he honored, um, he, it was Herod the Great who built it in honor of Augustus. Uh, so that's where the Caesar bit comes. And then one of Herod's sons, one of the Tetrarchs was named Philip. So in Her after Herod died, Philip kind of inherited this area. Uh, so he renamed the city from Panias. Uh, and then eventually because of the, I think, Aramaic influence or something, it was Banias. Uh, which is what it is again called today, it got renamed to Caesarea Philippi in honor of Caesar and Philip. And there was a temple there to the Emperor Augustus. So this is a site of pagan worship and a site of pagan kings. This is the site of, of um, the earthly structures and it's a military site. It's a powerful place. And Jesus intentionally walks all the way up there with his disciples. And then when he, he's on his way there, and this is in verse 8, 27 again, it says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Now, in the context of this book, remember, it's telling a story, but the story didn't start here. We're in chapter 8. Um, the very first verse of the book of Mark says in the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. So we, as the audience, we already know who Jesus is. There's no secret for us. Even the original recipients of this in 60 or 70 AD, they knew who Jesus was, but there is a tension that's created here because uh, Jesus is saying to his disciples, who do you say I am? And we're like, Oh, who are they going to say? Cause we already know, but maybe they'll say this, or maybe they'll say that. And that's exactly uh, what happens there. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, 
and still others, one of the prophets. So they think maybe he is one of these great men who's been um, brought back from the dead, remembering because John the Baptist has been killed. And uh, so the crowd has their pretty reasonable guesses at the identity of Jesus, but then Jesus eyeballs Peter. Loudmouth Peter, loud, uh, the Peter is kind of the spokesperson. He's the most bold of the disciples. So he eyeballs Peter and, and he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, like I said, the story is a bit shorter here in the, in the, the rendition of this tale in Matthew. Uh, Jesus makes a big deal out of Peter's declaration. And he does this clever wordplay uh, surrounding um, Simon, because uh, Simon in the Aramaic, uh, um, his nickname was Peter. And sorry, and so Kepha in Aramaic means rock, but also Petros in Greek means rock. Uh, and Petra uh, is, is when Jesus says, I'll build my church on this rock. He says Petra. So there's this cool wordplay with Peter's name, and it's a, a big deal. That's not recorded here. Um, and also when Jesus says, the, and I'll build my church here and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, which is like I said, the grotto that was there, they called it the gates of Hades. They thought that Pan would come up from the underworld. That was, so I think that it makes sense in Matthew for why Jesus would say those things. But in Mark, it just says they're on their way to that place and none of that gets mentioned. So Peter just says, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this. That's the, the whole recording of the account. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He's very explicit. And he's, this is not the first time he's told people, don't tell anyone who I am. See, he doesn't deny his identity as Messiah, which means anointed one. But he doesn't want them to tell anyone. You see, and this is kind of the turning point in the Gospel of Mark. He's been all around the area of Judea and, and, and all that. And now he heads all the way up to the top, uh, to, uh, to the base of Mount Herman, and now all of a sudden the rhetoric changes. From here on, he is walking towards Jerusalem. He is walking towards uh, his suffering and his passion and his crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection. But the tone of the book changes. Everything was in a hurry to get up there, and now they're in a hurry to get back down to Jerusalem. So I think that partly Jesus has been saying to people, don't tell anyone who I am, because he doesn't want to make this happen more quickly than then then it's already going to happen. He doesn't want to get killed yet. He doesn't want to get rounded up yet by the Romans. So he's just saying, hey, I'm glad you guys have figured something out, but I also need you to be quiet. But I actually think there's another reason that Jesus says, don't tell anyone what you have pronounced. Because when Peter says you are the Messiah, he has a particular picture of Jesus or a particular picture of the Messiah in mind. And I think that Jesus is like, I don't actually want you to tell people that because you're going to tell people things about me that aren't really true. Peter doesn't have the right picture of the Messiah. He doesn't want them to go spread rumors about their version of the anointed one. So Jesus admonishes them and says, don't tell anyone because he wants them to fully understand who he is before they proclaim him. And then he tries to explain to them who he really is. So this is in Mark 8.31 now. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. 
Now, we know now when we read through this that there is this imagery of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 that is the background to that language. Uh, but the more important thing, I think, in this particular little teaching by Jesus, uh, firstly is I think Peter probably cut him off before he even got to the, he'll be raised from the dead in three days. Either that's an uh, appendum that, you know, that Mark has made because we now know that and it didn't really get said at the time, or Peter is just so caught up in what Jesus is saying, you're going to be suffer, and you're going to be rejected, and you're going to be killed, and he just doesn't even hear that he's going to rise from the dead. But you see, in this little, um, this little teaching here, Jesus gives himself a title, and he doesn't say Messiah. What Jesus calls himself is the Son of Man. And this is a title that I've talked about before, so I'll only do it very briefly now, but if you uh, want to hear more about this, I can point you to the sermon I previously did on this. But it's a very important title in the Hebrew Scriptures. The Son of Man is central to the character, is the central character of a prophetic dream uh, that Daniel had in Babylon. So that, remember Daniel in the lion's den. So in Daniel chapter six, there's a guy named a king named Darius, um, who was the king after Belshazzar, who was the king after Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar's son was Belshazzar. Mm. Not sure the relationship between that and, and Darius off the top of my head. But Daniel was in Babylon. And he has this dream. And in the dream, the central character, the son of man, is taken up into heaven and sits upon a throne at the right hand of God. Uh, actually, I've got the verse here. Let me read this. It says, In my vision at night, this is Daniel seven thirteen and 14. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me, was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So in this vision that Daniel has, there are four great beasts. And these four great beasts represent the evil empires and their kings. They represent the worst of humanity. And so they represent how instead of building communities of love and justice and mercy, the uh, Sedekah and Mispat in the, in the Hebrew, instead of building these communities that reflect God's nature and care for the poor, we, we see that these beastly empires and these kings of, the, of old and even now, the empires of now, we build empires on the backs of slavery and on the backs of the oppression of the poor. And we don't love justice and mercy and we don't choose humility um, and we don't define good and evil in God's terms. We instead turn to our own evil hearts to, to, to find good and evil. And this is the vision that Daniel the prophet is having. He has this vision of these, of these evil empires and then in the midst of that, one like a son of man rises up and comes and is seated at the throne and is given all dominion and authority and glory forever and ever. So in response to Peter saying to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus agrees, but then he goes further. Jesus says, I'm the son of man. And in doing so, he claims the authority of the son of man. He claims the authority and the glory and the power forever and ever. And this excites Peter because Peter's religious nationalism is, is brought up by this. His fanatical religious nationalism that says, yes, I believe that you are these things. 
The only problem is, is that he thinks that means Jesus will rise up and destroy all of those evil empires with the sword. With might and with power, he will claim authority and dominion over all of these other empires. Peter isn't willing to accept a suffering servant who is rejected by the religious leadership instead of embraced and who is ultimately killed upon a cross. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. See, Peter knew that he was the Messiah, but he was also convinced that this meant that he would come on a war horse as a leader to, in triumph. But we know that Jesus instead came on the back of a donkey to die. He couldn't fathom a kingdom in which the king is killed. So in his grief and his anger, he shows his allegiance to the very systems of violence and domination the empires, the beastly empires of violence and domination that Jesus plans to overthrow. Instead of standing against those things, Peter thinks that Jesus will collude with them. It says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This uh, in the the rabbinic kind of culture and tradition, the idea of a disciple is, is that they would follow behind their master, follow behind a teacher. So when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, what he's really saying is your ideas are the beastly worldly ideas. You are not behind me. He's saying, get behind me, follow me. And I am going to go and die. And so you must also go and die. Get behind me. Follow behind me, Peter. Don't give in to the, the temptation of the beastly empires. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Get behind me. Follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever, wants, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels, again calling on that imagery from the book of Daniel. You see, Jesus never misled his disciples about the nature of his kingdom. Even though they misunderstood, he never misled them. From the outset, Jesus said, yes, I may be the Messiah. And yes, I have authority and dominion and glory forever and ever. But he never suggested that that would be a violent overthrow. He never suggested that he would collude and exercise the power of the sword to take control of the world. He always said that he was going to die. But they couldn't, his disciples couldn't see past their cultural worldview. They couldn't see past their heritage of expectation that the Messiah would be a warlord that would place them at the top of society again. They couldn't see past their religious nationalism and their desire for retributive, violent justice to the kind of kingdom of peace and love and restorative justice that Jesus is talking about. It never occurred to them that Jesus would take up a cross rather than a sword. 
And this phrase, take up a cross, has kind of lost its meaning in our culture. But in that first century worldview, to take up a cross literally meant to carry the crossbeam that you would be nailed to, to carry the crossbeam that you would be tied to in, in your own crucifixion. They knew what that language meant. And it didn't mean that you would somehow have this triumphant experience. It literally meant that you would be tormented and suffer and die. And Jesus said, you must do that as I do that. You see, Jesus hanging on a cross does not look victorious. Which is why we have to remember what Jesus said, that he would also rise again in three days. We must trust him. It's so hard to trust Jesus in the face of the world, the empires and the dominion and power. and the, Like even when you look at the world today, you look at the brokenness and the horror and the violence and the, and the infighting and the greed and the, just the destruction that exists in our world that is really difficult to trust Jesus. But we must trust that the war and the violence and the death and the suffering and the greed and the malice and all manner of evil will ultimately be done away with in the kingdom of God. We must trust that the unjust and the apathetic and the unmerciful and the evil empires and powers and authorities will receive judgment and that the poor and the oppressed and that the broken and the innocent victims of the world's corruption will receive life everlasting through Christ who died for them. You see, that's the promise that Jesus was holding. He was holding a promise that says, one day, one day. But not just one day, from this day forward. You see, when he sat with Caiaphas, the high priest, before his crucifixion, he says, from now on, from now on, not just in a thousand years or two thousand years, not just upon my return, but now, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming of the clouds of heaven. You see, from now on, Jesus is saying, from now we proclaim a new kingdom. And my church upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. He's the Messiah. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is greater than Augustus Caesar. He is greater than Tiberius Caesar. He is greater than all those edifices of pagan worship. He is mighty. He is the Son of Man and He sits upon the throne of God and He has all authority and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And it is our responsibility as His body and as His hands to, to do something in order to see that kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven, in this moment, not just in the moments that come. And to do that, we must trust him. It's our task to see that kingdom come. And in to do that, we must follow behind him. We must take up a cross. We must live a life like the Son of Man, even if it means a life of suffering, even if it means a life of sacrifice, even if it means a life where we don't have wealth or comfort, a life where we don't have all of the things that we feel like we should have, the things that were promised to us, a land of milk and honey and the things that are good and true and very good in the Garden of Eden, all of those things, we must be willing to put those things aside and follow in the path of Jesus and trust that he will restore, that trust that he will make all things right and good and true again. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would trust in you and that we would see you not just as Messiah and Savior and King, but we would see you as an example to follow and that we would trust that you rose again and conquered sin and death 
and that ultimately you will make all things new. Place that in our hearts, Heavenly Father. May we be people that make things new. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.